Well, we just celebrated Thanksgiving, and I hope that it was a great time for you to gather with family and with loved ones, and of course to eat lots of really good food, you know? Amen. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we have so much to be thankful for. We really do. So, what a perfect time to celebrate Easter, right? You know? Yeah. Uh, you may be saying, wait, 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 I still have tons of leftover turkey, my house is a mess, I haven't even put up my Christmas decorations, let alone think about celebrating Easter. But, uh, man, this, you know, for, for all of us who are trusting in Christ, every day should be a day of thanksgiving, and every day should be a day in which we celebrate, truly celebrate Easter. You know, as Christians, we can spend a lot of time on Good Friday, we can spend a lot of our focus and a lot of our energy on, on the cross and what we've gained through it. And we should. We definitely should. But the reality is, the cross means very little if Christ has not risen from the grave. Paul says it this way. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we, of all people, are most to be pitied. But as we shall see today, there is reason for great hope. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And this statement points us to the most decisive point in all of history. This is the climax of the gospel. In fact, without it, there is no gospel. So today, as we look at John 11, we're simply going to expound upon what Jesus means when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. I want us to get a glimpse of what Jesus meant by this and how this truth applies to the Christian life. So as a result, there's going to be a lot that unfortunately we're going to have to overlook. But I just want to point out a couple of things before we get started so that you can go back and meditate on the significance to us. One of the big themes that comes across in John 11 that we won't be able to look at is the complete humanity of Christ. Um, in John 11, you see the fullness of Christ's humanity in his intimate, loving relationship with Lazarus, with Martha, and with Mary. You see the depth of his emotion in his gladness, in his love, in his compassionate sorrow, and in his righteous anger over death and unbelief. And you see what man's perfect obedience ought to be, uncorrupted by sin, as Jesus was completely committed to the glory of God. The second major theme that we won't be able to fully focus on is the deity of Christ. From Jesus' foreknowledge of Lazarus' death and resurrection to his prayer of thanksgiving for what God was going to do to build the faith of some of those who witnessed it, John 11 is all about the deity of Christ, that He is fully God. So these two issues are worthy of, of particular reflection and praise, and I would commend them to you. I, I hope that you go back and examine those. Um, but our goal for today is to focus on this one thing. What did Jesus mean when He said, I am the resurrection and the life? What is He claiming? And how should we respond so with that, we're going to read John 11, 1 through 44, just so we can catch the overall context. So if you would, turn with me there. John 11, starting in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. 
It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and now you are going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone is in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called to her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here, and he is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could he who who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, 
Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, and said, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet still bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. You know, of all the accounts of Jesus' life, this one is actually probably my favorite. In reading this passage, it's actually like getting that little secret, that all-important clue that allows you to know what's going to happen before it actually does. It gives you a peek into the future. You see, Jesus has already predicted his death at least twice, if not all three times. And now you see him in the most vivid account of his raising a dead person to life, actually acting upon that prediction. And by doing so, he powerfully validates his claim to be the resurrection and the life. And in it, he conveys in very tangible ways the theological implications of what he means when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And so that's what we're going to look at today. The first implication we see from Jesus being the resurrection and the life is that it guarantees Christ's authority as God for all time. You know, as we've seen in previous weeks, Jesus says, I am. And when he does this, he's characterizing himself with the very name of God. You remember in Exodus 3, God says to Moses, I am who I am. I am has sent you. Tell them, tell them so. And here Jesus is taking the name of God upon himself. And with that name, he's taking on the very authority of God. Here he says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the one who gives life. I am the one who sustains life. And I am the one who gives new life. I have authority as creator, as sustainer, and as the recreator of all life. Now here, I just want to point out that resurrection and life are not synonymous, but they're interrelated. It's through resurrection that we receive both spiritual and eternal life. And life here is both spiritual and eternal. And I want to make a distinction here. Eternal life requires that you die and are glor- or are glorified. But spiritual life requires that Jesus dies and is glorified. Your life, both eternal and spiritual, begins not when you are resurrected, but when Jesus is resurrected. You see, the resurrection and life come through Jesus. He alone has authority to give resurrection and life. We will be raised and receive life in a positive sense only as we are in Him. This is what Jesus is claiming when He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. That resurrection and life are found only and truly in me. But the resurrection and the life are not just going to take place on the last day. I want to be clear in pointing this out because oftentimes as Christians we kind of think, okay, you know, I believe what Jesus is saying here, that I'll be raised and I'll have eternal life after I die. But this is really incomplete. This is an incomplete view of what he's saying here. We receive resurrection life from Jesus not when we die, but right now. 
From the moment we first believe, we continually receive resurrection life. I mean, look back at verses 23 and 24. What does Martha say? Martha rightly believes that all will be raised on the last day. She holds to the Jewish belief from, in, from passages such as Ezekiel 37 or Daniel 12.2 or Isaiah 26.19 that affirms that the dead would rise again on the last day. Martha actually affirms what Jesus has previously said in John 6.40 that we looked at a few weeks ago where Jesus says, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and I will raise Him up on the last day. Yet Jesus means something more here. He says, yeah, 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 that's true. But I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. With all the authority of God, he says, if you believe in me, resurrection and life are yours now. Jesus then proves that he has authority over life, death, and resurrection by raising his friend Lazarus. By calling Lazarus from the grave, Jesus confirms that he has the authority of God because only God can do that. Only God can raise a man to life. Now, it's interesting to note, Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. And according to Jewish tradition, that's never coming back dead. They essentially believe that it was possible for the soul to be reunited with the body on the first day, or on the second day, or on the third day. But when you get to the fourth day, the body was too, you know, it it was just too decayed. So he was never coming back dead. But yet Jesus shows his authority over this kind of death by raising his friend Lazarus to life again. This man who was once beyond all hope of return has been raised by Jesus, the Son of God who proves his power over this never-coming-back death by raising Lazarus from the grave. But you know, actually, there's one more resurrection account that we have that's greater than this one, that proves, that confirms, that establishes Jesus' authority as the Son of God even more than Lazarus' death. And that's Jesus' own. Paul says in in Romans 1.4 that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Now Paul doesn't mean that Jesus was declared or suddenly became the Son of God because He was raised, but rather His resurrection left no doubt that He was the Son of God. His resurrection actually served as an undeniable truth that testifies that He really is the Son of God. Therefore, Jesus could say in John eleven forty, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Here, he's not talking about that they would see Lazarus raised to life again. That's not the glory that he's referring to. Jesus is actually referring to himself. That you will see me, the Son of God, and all my authority as I raise Lazarus from the dead. That's the glory of God which he speaks here. Jesus truly is the authoritative and sovereign Son of God. A second implication of Jesus being the resurrection and the life is that it guarantees our regeneration right now. In that well-known passage, Ephesians 2, verses 1-6, through 6, 
It tells us that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, that we followed the course of this world, that we were under the influence of Satan, that we lived for our passions to carry out the desires of our body and of our mind, that we were enemies of God, subject to His wrath. But then the passage explodes with this great and glorious truth. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here we see that it is the sacrifice of Christ that God Through that sacrifice, God made us alive together with Jesus. He raised us up with Him, and He seated us with Him in the heavenly places. And all of this is past tense. It's considered a done deal. As we are united with Christ, somehow spiritually, we experienced His death. We experienced His resurrection. And we experienced His exaltation. We are with Him, even in that. We experience that now. Spiritually, we have gone from death to life. We have gone from the grave to resurrection. And as we are united with Christ, we share a place with Him in heaven, even now. And all this happens when we come to a saving knowledge of, with a saving knowledge of Christ. And this is what's called the doctrine of regeneration. And it's a great doctrine. It's an act of God in which He imparts new spiritual life in us in which He causes us to be born again. It's an instantaneous change that's brought about by God that has ongoing results in our lives. Through our regeneration, we're actually transformed. Our desires end up changing, and as humans, our nature is restored to what it was before Adam and Eve fell into sin. So though our bodies remain as they were, still subject to weakness, still subject to aging and death, when we are united with Christ, we now share in the resurrection life. I mean, this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.17 that all who are in Christ are a new creation, given the power and grace to follow Christ in obedience, to seek the things that are above, seated at the right hand of God. This is the power that God gives us in gaining victory over our sin and strengthen us for the ministry to work His work, to fulfill His mission, to expand His kingdom. So you see, our association with the death of Jesus means that we have received atonement, that we're no longer guilty, we've no longer received the punishment of sin. But it's through our our association with Jesus' resurrection that we have new life in the Spirit. Jesus' resurrection is not only... uh, Jesus' resurrection in the past not only secures our resurrection in the future but it gives us the power to live a new life right now. And so Paul says in Romans 6, 4, that we were buried therefore with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. As we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ, we now walk in the newness of life and have the ability to put off sin and to put off Christ. Unlike our life before Christ, where we had to follow our sinful passions, our sinful desires, we were slaves to our sin, we now have the freedom to obey. And we now have the grace to 
to follow the will of God, to be a part of, of the mission of Christ. We can pursue holiness. We can be transformed. And that's something we did not have before we were in Christ. And though we're not perfect, that we can still sin, we now have the power not to. All who are united in the resurrection of Christ have received the spirit of life who works in them to draw them away from their old life, full of sin and rebellion to God, and leads them in an ever-increasing desire to do the will of God, to live our lives for Him, to follow after Christ and to love Him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our minds, and with all our strength. It's through the resurrection that Jesus regenerates us and gives us the power, gives us the life here now. So, let me ask you, I mean, do you see yourself growing in that? Do you see regeneration at work in your hearts? Do you see you slowly being transformed? Putting off sin more and more, putting on Christ more and more, growing in a desire to follow after His will. Another effect of the resurrection in the life is that it guarantees our justification now. In Romans 4.25, Paul explicitly connects Christ's resurrection with our justification, or our receiving a declaration that we are not guilty, but righteous before God. He says that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. When Christ was raised from the dead, it was a declaration of God's approval of Christ's work in redemption. By resurrecting Jesus from the dead, God the Father was in effect saying that He approved of Christ's suffering and and His dying for our sins. That His work on this earth was accomplished and that Christ no longer had any need to remain dead. Sin has no victory over us. Death can no longer contain Him. He's already you know, suffered all the wrath of God. He's already paid all the penalty of sin. There's no more guilt, no more liability to punishment. All had been completely paid for, and no guilt remained. So in the resurrection, God was saying to Christ, I approve of what you have done, and you have found favor in my sight. But this is the amazing thing. Wayne Grudem says it this way, If God raised us up with Christ, then by virtue of our union with Christ, God's declaration of of approval to Christ is now applied to us. When the Father, in essence, said to Christ, All the penalty for sins has been paid, and I find you not guilty, but righteous in my sight, He thereby is making a direct declaration that would apply also to us once we have trusted in Christ for salvation. So by our union with Christ's resurrection, we too have been justified, able to stand before God and live. There's no more need for penance. There's no more need for us to to labor, to, to merit God's favor. We have the righteousness of Christ to clothe us. That is, there's... Nothing more that we can do. No more penalty that we have to pay. And this is extremely liberating. Extremely freeing. The the declaration that God gave of Christ in raising Him from the dead and saying, I affirm what you have done. It is complete. And you are righteous in my sight is now given to us. This is a great gift. And it is given through the resurrection of Jesus. Without the resurrection, we don't have that. 
Furthermore, as Jesus, uh, Jesus says the resurrection and the life guarantees that we will receive perfect resurrection bodies then. You know, several times in the New Testament, Jesus' resurrection is connected to our final resurrection. Just a couple of examples. 1 Corinthians 6.14 And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Or 2 Corinthians 4.14 He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. Jesus' resurrection and ascension to God ensures that we too will will be raised and stand before the Father. And according to 1 Corinthians 15, this new body that we're going to be given is so much better than the body that we have now. It's going to be a spiritual body, an imperishable body, an immortal, glorious body, a body that's raised in power. And for those who are in Christ, it's a body that's going to perfectly bear the image of God. You know, Paul describes the final resurrection like a plant that grows out of a seed. And if you... Our bodies are like a seed that when that seed is planted in the ground, when it in its essence dies, that, that body splits, that husk is torn in two, and out of that grows this plant that is far better than that seed ever was. When we look at an acorn and we compare it to an oak tree, it's obvious what is greater. When we look at a you know, kernel of, of corn and we look at the tall stalk, that stands there in front of us, green, growing, and lush, we, we, it's obvious that plant is far better. And Paul uses that description in 1 Corinthians 15 to say, that's what our bodies are like. When these frail bodies die, something far greater will come about. A perfect spiritual body. This body is no longer subject to decay. It's no longer sown in dishonor. It's no longer constrained by sin. We'll have eyes to see the glory of God. That's going to be amazing. So that we're going to stand there, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is indeed the Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so all of this, this uh, the fact that we we have, you know, we see that the resurrection of life guarantees Christ's authority, that it guarantees our regeneration, that it guarantees our justification, that it guarantees this perfect resurrected body. All of this leads us to believe in Christ to be our undying hope. And that hope is now. 1 Peter 1.3 tells us that God should be blessed because of His great mercy that has caused us to have new life. It's caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because He lives, all who are in Him have life. God, who, who caused us to be born again, has caused us to be born again, has given us this undying hope. We know that since He raised Jesus to glory, that He's also going to raise us to glory. We will be the recipients of inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And the result of this is overwhelming. When we catch this, when we understand that we too have this promise of being raised in glory, 
This life somehow doesn't matter as much. We, we see it for what it is. That we are but dust. Therefore, we can rejoice even though we suffer. That we can actually boldly face danger and share the hope of the gospel with our enemies. And we can trust that sin and that Satan and death will have no victory over us. Because though we die, yet shall we live. The resurrection and the life gives us an imperishable hope. This hope that cannot die. And therefore we can truly sing, whatever my lot, God has taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. And this is why the resurrection and eternal life was such an essential part of preaching in the New Testament. I mean, this is why Paul said that if the resurrection didn't happen, your faith is futile. The resurrection is essential to the gospel message. Our life and hope in Christ, both now and in eternity, depend upon it. But yet there's one more implication that remains. You see, the resurrection in the life guarantees that Jesus will judge the living and the dead in the last day. You know, numerous passages affirm that Christ will judge all mankind. For example, Acts 10.42 confirms that Jesus was appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. But perhaps no passage does Jesus himself more clearly affirm his authority to judge all, um, to be as judge over all, than in John 5.25-29 where he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Here Jesus affirms that all will indeed be raised, the tombs will be emptied, and all will be judged by Jesus. The Father has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is indeed the Son of God. All mankind, from all time, will be divided into two groups. Those who have believed in Him (coughs) will receive the resurrection of life, the forgiveness of sin. Those who have done evil and rebelled against God to the resurrection of judgment, doomed to face an eternity in bodily torment and hell. And Jesus affirms that this division is forever. There is no going back. Our resurrection destination is permanent. Those who receive the resurrection of life will spend eternity with God in heaven. But those who face the resurrection of judgment will suffer the just wrath of God for all eternity. So Jesus is the resurrection of life. And as we have seen, these two terms are interrelated and apply immediately to us. Not just after death, but from the moment we first believed. But Jesus' question to Martha is the same question that he actually poses to us. Do you believe this? Do you believe me? You know, at the moment, she probably didn't realize the full ramification of her answer. When she said, yes, 
I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. A statement, by the way, that Jesus doesn't deny. But I'm sure that she was acutely aware of what she had said as she stood before her brother, who had been dead for four days, still wrapped in linen cloth. Verses 45 and 46 that we didn't read them tells us that we can respond to Jesus' claim and this miraculous verification of that claim in one of two ways. We can either respond in worship or we can respond in unbelief. When some saw this man who had been dead for four days, this never coming back dead man, suddenly raised to life, they, like Mary and like Martha, believed. But seeing is not believing. Many saw what had happened. And they hardened their hearts against him. They went to the Pharisees. And they talked to the Pharisees and explained what had happened. And the Pharisees, who understood the Old Testament, who would have known Ezekiel 37, who would have known Daniel 12.2, who would have known Isaiah 26.19, instead of reading that and saying, yes, he must be the Son of God, they too hardened their hearts. <clears throat> and even Caiaphas, the high priest that year, had this prophecy that was from God. And he totally misunderstood it. He hardened his heart against Christ. The reality is that seeing is not believing. It's easier for us to, st to stand here and say, you know what? It would be so much easier to have faith if I could see someone rise from the dead. If I could see that blind man give a new sight. If I could see Jesus walk on water. But the truth is, we would be just as likely be to follow in the footsteps of these people. To see the miracle and then harden our hearts against Christ. Apart from the spiritual eyes of faith, we're blind. Seeing is not believing. Rather, true faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of life. So if you hear Christ's words today, that I am the resurrection and the life, Please don't harden your hearts against him. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. By his wounds, we are healed. So realize that those who believe now are forgiven now and will be accepted by Christ then in the judgment day. But those who do not believe, who reject God now. He will reject then in the judgment day. So come to Him who truly is the resurrection and the life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have sent Your Son with all authority, with all right, with all power, to give us life in Him. God, forgive us where we fail to acknowledge the significance of the resurrection, how prone we are to minimize it, to question it, to not see how much we need it. But God, I pray 
that we will have eyes of faith like Mary and Martha as they stood before their brother, as they stood before the Son of God and recognized Jesus is the I Am. God, we pray that if there's anyone here that maybe hasn't done that, that they would talk to somebody, that we could help them take the next step of faith. We pray that for those of us who have have been here and have questioned and doubted, that we would confess our sin and that we would truly respond to Jesus, the resurrection and the life. It's in his name we pray. Amen.